Hi, welcome to this episode of Behind Startup Lines, where my good friend John Taylor, CEO of Action AI, a deep tech company that serves the conversational AI intelligence market, talks to us about building sales in early stage companies. John shares with us some really fascinating insights. He talks about the importance of partnering early on in building traction in sales and the challenges that that represents. He also talks about the importance of testing a series of hypotheses to help you discover the value proposition that meets your intended customer needs and the importance of doing that as part of the early process. He shares with us some tactics around building call planners and capturing information from those discussions that you can then feed back into your team and into your organization that will help you develop the product. He talks to us about the dangers of over-promising on features that are impossible to deliver, but also on the importance of talking to prospective customers in helping you develop your product roadmap. And finally, he talks about the emotions of winning that first deal and how that often is just the beginning of the challenge. John, it's great to see you. Uh, Thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing your journey as a founder, uh, and particularly relating to the sales part of your job. Perhaps we could start with you talking a bit about your founder journey to date. Yeah. Hi, Phil. Thanks so much for the invite. Really delighted to be here and uh, look forward to the conversation. So yeah, my my founder journey. So I suppose I, I currently uh, founded and run a, an AI startup. We've been going about six years. Uh, but if I talk about where this all started, I suppose I my first company was a collection of students trying to pay off lots of debt um, during my doctorate a long time ago, which was a bit of professional services around tech. I then did sales as part of my role. So I'm not a professional and trained salesperson like you. I'm a, I've learned this as I go, really. But I spent a number of years in what we'll call professional services, really, I think, selling consulting. So that involves selling to government, local, regional, some national, and also to the private sector. Um, and I suppose I learned a lot there about how to, hopefully, anyway, some of the things that have been useful since about how to engage people excite them and, and most importantly get them to execute on a deal really which is uh which is never easy so my journey has been i suppose selling professional services and more of a consultative approach and then also probably the last 10 12 years at least now it's probably longer of, of what you might call um, technology b2b sales so selling particularly to large enterprises not always huge but typically to large enterprises relatively complex products so that's been the last 10, 15 years of my life, but I first started doing consulting professional services uh, and I and I once ran a sweet shop for a year or two. So there you go. So that's my that, that's my credentials. So sales training I would describe as fairly minimal other than through you know some of the programs I've been on as a founder, some of the conversations I've had with, you know, I I, I luckily bumped into you some time ago, those sorts of quality of conversations I've had, but a lot of it has been learning th- through emulation or experience, I'd say. So I'm not claiming lots of expertise. I think it's important to underline. Great. Well, a lot of the people listening to this show have a similar background. Uh, Most are not natural salespeople or come from a sales background. And I think that's what makes the story so interesting. 
I'll touch on founder programs a bit later on because I'd like to go a bit deeper into the benefit of doing that because there are lots of different courses and programs you could get involved with. I'm interested to get your view later if you think it's worth the, the time and effort for doing that. But let's jump to where you are today and you built uh, Action AI at the AI business that's helping um, big financial institutions with customer service. Could you just tell, give us a little bit of a background to what the company's products are, and then we'll get into what it was like building traction and winning customers in the early days. Yeah, so we spent a number of years developing, I guess, pioneering technology to automate the interactions between people, us, customers, and businesses. And really, if you think about the world of chatbots that you will have come across, or you'll have seen probably lots of media about chat GPT and all of that world, the challenge has always been, how do you create an experience between a person, me, and let's say a bank that that doesn't frustrate me, that gives me a really good experience, but also happens to be probably very efficient to deliver. So I make a call. Instead of waiting for 15 minutes, I wait for three rings. I have a conversation and I speak in the way I wish to speak. I use my own language. The customer is never wrong. So we let me, in, if you like, in my unfettered way, ask what I'd like to ask. And I have a back and forth with a nice sounding, but nevertheless, a machine that helps me through a process to get something done, perform an action. So if you think about its utility, if yes, banking and retail banking and insurance, there are a long list of potential use cases. But really anywhere where any of us have had, if you like, frustrating customer experiences, that's where we really like to work. And we're really a language company. We work a lot on voice, but ultimately it's just about the stuff that you do brilliantly and everyone listening does brilliantly, which is human communication. Machines are not naturally well disposed to it. So how do we help those machines not pretend to be human, but at least take on some of the things that we do? You know, I am, um, I will be verbose as I'm speaking now. I may be hesitant. I may change my mind about something I say. I just might be human. And that's pretty normal. And those experiences are. Generally, the market have not been great, so we've got some technology that solves that problem um, on a big basis. So it's an exciting, differentiated proposition. That does not mean that everyone knocks on our door on day one and said, this looks great, how quickly can we give you money? That isn't how the world works. But from a product point of view, I, I guess I work with people who have built something extraordinary, which makes my life at least doable rather than easy. But it has made it, um, yeah, it has given us something powerful to work from. Well, let's go right the way back then to the beginning when you launched the business, because even though now there's a lot of excitement around generative AI and the technologies that are emerging, emerging now, six or seven years ago, no one had even thought of this. And you turn up and you say, hey, we've got a better way to solve this problem. Buy this thing from me. What was that like? Even getting attention, never mind getting them to buy anything. What was getting attention like in the early days? Really tough. Really tough. So what happened, and I, I won't bore anybody with this, but very briefly, the, the world of chatbots blew up in March of 2016 because the CEO of Microsoft stood on stage at their big global conference and he said, chatbots will be as big as the web. And then Mark Zuckerberg said the same thing more or less two weeks later. And suddenly the world went crazy for these things called chatbots. And at that time, we were we just started and we were quite sceptical about chatbots. We were sceptical because we loved the idea of getting through quickly and getting things done, but we just thought they were going to struggle to understand humans, people, us. And I think it's fair to say that they then did. So we were not selling in that early stage. We had some approaches um, to do things, but we were not technically ready to do something differentiated and exciting, and so we didn't sell. However, however, we then did have a, a, a platform based on 
text-based interactions. We do voice now mainly. And I think the only way we could really get into the market candidly was at that time, the marketing messages of Google and Microsoft and IBM were very, um, very excitable, let's say. And when one might argue that there was a gap between the marketing narrative and the reality of, de- of delivery. But in those early days, if I talked to a third party, a large enterprise and said, buy our stuff, we just started two years ago. You've never heard of us, by the way. And we're in a different geography. But honestly, we know what we're doing. They would have said to me, and some did later on, yeah, but Google do this uh, and, and I'll go and buy from them. And mostly they did from companies like that. And I don't blame them. I understand the rationale rationale of that. And I suppose perhaps what made um, our business at least an easier sell was because perhaps that gap between marketing and the reality became better understood as people started to deploy pretty fragile solutions. And they had big business cases that were going to deliver you know, huge return on investment in short periods. And they didn't materialize. And they didn't materialize mainly because the technology used just wasn't really quite up to it. They were smart people. They were good businesses. The use case was solid. It just couldn't quite be delivered because when people started to engage with these services, they got frustrated because they weren't understood. So to some degree, if you like, we had to let the market go through a bit of maturation because I wouldn't have bought from me either if I knew Google could do the same as me or better. It's only when they understood that there was some complexity here that then a company like Action I could have a conversation that said, oh, you know, you're doing this now. I think we can do this in a different way, which I think will improve the outcomes. And that was the sort of the flavor and tone of our sales. So the market made a big difference to not the hype of today, but just getting through that, um, if you like, confusion, because we were too small to educate the whole market. We just couldn't do it. So it was challenging. And mostly in the early stages, we did not try to sell. But when we did, there were still companies, and even now, less so now, but Three, two, three years ago, there were still companies saying, we've not done anything yet, but we know IBM can do this. And despite all the evidence in the market of, say, IBM solutions, which were okay, but didn't do what this company wanted to do, they would still proceed because it felt safe. And then six months, 12 months, 18 months later, you know, you have the opportunity to, for them to come back and have another conversation, which is always great. But yeah, but fighting the market it, it is tough. It is tough. So we hope we didn't fight it too much. Did you factor that into uh, your your plan when you went to market that it was just going to take that amount of time, or is that something you learned as you were having these conversations? Yeah, I, I think I think it was there were there was probably something else as well that happened. So factored into a degree, but never sufficiently, I would say initially. But I think what we learned we started off with a hypothesis, really, that language would be too difficult for, if you like, standard chatbots to provide good experiences. People would just communicate in a way that's natural and it's hard to support but we didn't know that that was a hypothesis and it probably took us a couple of years just to prove out that hypothesis that yes people talk in complicated ways and these more rudimentary experiences were going to be frustrating it took a while for the hype in the market to die down i'm talking about 2016 2017 it's a while ago now so once there was a settling of reality then we were able to enter the market so we weren't rushing into the market i think that's important to say because we we knew we had to develop something differentiated we couldn't be 5% better than something else. We took a view, and it was a rather brave view, to build a deep tech company in a space where there were very few of them. And aside from myself, hire very smart people with, if you like, academic credentials in this field who could go very, very deep. Because only in so doing were we ever going to compete with the giants because they were always going to outdo us in every aspect of resource. But the one bit they couldn't do, potentially, 
is recognize the problem early enough and then spend a lot of time with a lot of success and failure trying to solve it. But it was a mixed approach. And I think in managing stakeholders like investors and shareholders, it's it's always challenging, always, because just as you evolve your business and your ideas, you've got to bring them with you. And my business, Action AI, AI, it's not traditional. You don't spend three months to build a great product and take it to market. You can't build anything in three months, not if you're doing any foundational, fundamental research. It might be more like three years. It's not pharma, but you're somewhere between, if you like, B2B enterprise tech, which I've done before, and pharmaceutical, which is, you know, that's another level. But somewhere in between that often sits AI. And it's, so it's a different type of business to to build, I think. Um, it's exciting, but different. And then your market entry point's got to be very careful. And of course, we made stacks of mistakes. I wasted a lot of time in conversations with organizations who got excited about this field. And, and most of it was inbound and came to us and said, can you do A, B, and C? And it's really difficult. I found it very difficult in those early days to not talk to large organizations, even if their ideas seemed maybe a little bit um, fantastic at times. It's really hard to say no to you know the US government or to NASA or to whoever it might have been because you get it's exciting. And you learn a bit from those conversations, but mostly you waste your time. And that's just the learning I've had. You know, I learned my lessons slowly, but that one I've learned several times over. And um, it's tough to say no to people early on, but we kind of had to avoid a lot of conversation that was clearly not going to really go anywhere commercially. Fun though it was to have. You know, I often refer to this as sort of chasing the, the big shiny object when you get these opportunities that pop up that look really attractive. But in effect, they're huge time wasters because either their, their thinking hasn't really been developed enough for them to be a point of buying and you need early traction in customers to prove that your proposition solves the problem that you believe uh, that it does. And you end up chasing these uh, shiny objects on different yeah. horizons, which is why having a plan or even in the early days of building a go-to-market plan is so important for startups. Did you do that? Did you write a go-to-market plan earlier? Or again, was this something that just evolved over time? So I think we, before we got going, we wrote, I suppose we saw an opportunity and we wrote out what we thought would be the ideal, I guess, perhaps is what we wrote out. So we're going to focus in this area on these sectors. Probably these sorts of business will be interested. Getting hold of them will be very, very difficult because they were all absolutely huge so we probably will need to partner was a very early insight. We kind of, we worked that out pretty early, mainly I think based on previous experience. So partnering and by partnering, I should be clear. I mean, commercial partnerships where a, a company, a large company is providing into, let's say the banking sector, providing all sorts of software, arguably, maybe in this area as well. But what, what they may be lacking, they may have some product gaps. So how do you fill a product gap of a partner such that they can, if you like, help take you to market? You do some of your own perhaps as well, some direct, but you've got a that's kind of, I guess it's an indirect route to market. How do you build that out? And that's challenging too. But we took that view pretty early on. But yeah, I, I would be, it would be un, untrue to say that in, you know, on, in January 2016, we had a beautifully um, laminated go-to-market plan that didn't change one iota between then and now. It, 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 we, that wasn't the case. And certainly things have evolved tremendously for all sorts of reasons to do with our business and the technology we've developed to do with the market, to do where their enterprises are. But a plan is the most important thing, full stop, and I could not agree more. So yeah, it took us a while to evolve that, I think. And um, one of the core parts of the plan that was that um, maybe was hardest, actually, I think, was 
was not the detail it was the high level it's it's what is the proposition and the communication that is going to provide differentiation in a market that that is actually quite complicated and therefore your points of differentiation are either obvious through demoing or really very complex and i'll give an example so we do voice so i can demo what i do and it's a live demo and that's the best calling card ultimately it it's an authentic thing it shows what we do and it's a very good thing to do but actually if yeah. soon as you go to the next level below that and someone says to you and i'll give a, just a silly example so it's, it turns out to be really really difficult for a computer to work out when someone has finished speaking okay because have they what have they said if they've gone quiet is it a pause have they called and said i'm just calling about and they've gone quiet have they finished so this this small issue that sounds so easy for humans we're amazing at this Typically, automated services are dreadful at. Now, if you start explaining what's called end of speech in its minutiae to anybody, they'll either A, fall asleep, which I, understandably probably already have listened to me now, or, or B, just give up the ghost completely and think, well, this is just too complicated for me to deal with. But if you don't touch any of those things, what is it you're going to talk about? So you talk about benefits. You talk about benefits. But somebody, not lot, says, oh, that's really great. Yeah, yeah. So how is it, what is it though you're doing? I don't really get how this works. Why is this different from whoever, Google? And finding that messaging, we found hard. That was really tough for us to find the right mm. um, proposition and communication of it that wasn't so technical it was ridiculous and wasn't so high level that it was just, well, yeah, yeah. We do holidays or well, everyone's holiday. You know, how do you get below that? And I think we got there and I think now we are, but that was... You know, when I say it took a while, that might that probably took us 18 months, I don't at least. I mean, it was really easy to do a version of it, but to hone it carefully for the right audience was really, we found it tough and we had people helping us with that and all sorts of things, but it was, it was just a tough task in a market where understandably people are not educated about this tech because they're doing their day jobs. My job is to know what we do. Why would anybody else know about it? It's pretty, it's slightly esoteric, I suppose, at one level. Yeah. So that was really tough, really, really tough. And something I had not encountered before in sales. I was always selling something that I could communicate and kind of pretty much open up the whole thing to somebody and they would understand it. Now, if I do that and use certain language, right. I would lose 99% of people straight away. And was there a process that you employed as a team early on that helped you work through that? And I'm thinking here about post-discussion analysis reflection um was there any tactics that you used thought actually yeah if we'd done that earlier that would have really helped us yeah I, I think one of the things we didn't do and i do more do now and and develop more of was i'll call them call planners almost it's it's if i'm engaging with a third party isn't not what am i going to say i i don't work that way I, I like to speak in an extemporary fashion i guess but just understanding before i start that it seems so trivial who are they? What, what outcome do I want from this call? How do I how do I understand that these are their problems? I'm making assumptions here. I may be wrong. How do I establish what their problems are? In the, but in the first, preferably 10 or 15 minutes maximum of that conversation, so I know I'm positioning it correctly, and how do I adapt? And having done that, then how do I move to a conversation that's the, 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 the meat of it, but makes sure there's an outcome? Because we've got lots of excitement. Excitement's great. But, but really, who's the decision maker? Is there budget? Is this in your time frame? Is it this year? Is it 2027? Mm -hmm. um, you might be the senior VP of this department, but it turns out the budget hold, is held by the VP in a completely di different division. And you don't really get on with her for whatever reason. And, and I can't find all of this out early, but just having a kind of plan. And then, then after that, in like a CRM, just, just capturing that quickly, 
finding the time and making the time, which is a tough discipline. I find this hard. But you finish a great call. We're all very, very busy. You know, you may have a call in immediately after it, which is never, never good advice. My best advice, never put calls back to back, but create time for your CRM and then put the notes in in a fashion. And sometimes I miss things. I still do. You know, I have a conversation. I have nine things I want to do. And I got, and seven I've got. I'm thinking, oh, I wish, how did we not get into point six? And, you know, it's frustrating even now, but, but that's more call planning rather mm. than, rather than kind of, um, rather than a, it's, it's part of a, a tactics rather than a strategy. But there are things I found tremendously useful. And I used to say those things, I used to completely yeah. not avoid, but I thought there was, you know, there were, I knew my product, I knew what I'm doing. I don't need some sort of plan. And actually that worked in the past because I was in simpler, there were simpler propositions, simpler products, simpler conversations. In my world now, that would be a disaster because it's just too much. There's always complexity, but there's even more uh, for me to keep track of. And I will do, and I'll never do a very a great job unless I'm pretty slavish to the plan, the outcome, the follow-up. And when I'm not, things go less well every time. So you, you bought into a CRM quite early, did you, as a business? Yeah, we to did. To help you capture that information? We did. When we started out, because it was available, we were part of an accelerator, there was an offer, and I'd used ones before, but HubSpot was one that we started using. It was straightforward to use. It was, it was genuinely off the shelf. It wasn't perfect to what we need, but it was pretty good. And we still now use it because, of course, like all these things, you grow up with a tool. It, it has evolved. We have evolved with it. We bought slightly more expensive packages, and as you do. But we started off with a, I can't remember what it cost, but for the sake of conversation, it was probably 10 or $15 a month for something of almost, almost zero. And it was great for organizing targets, tracking conversations, building out a sense of who in an organization could be of interest and building that alongside something like LinkedIn sales navigator. The two don't communicate beautifully together. That's the frustration of life. They don't play particularly well together, but they play just about well enough that there's just about enough overlap to work across both. And so those two tools I found to be very helpful. I can't say that they are the absolute best because I don't use, I'm now wedded to those two principally, but I found them, good enough for us and the reporting out of HubSpot's okay. I mean, it's okay. If we had 10,000 people and seven divisions, it wouldn't be, but it's good enough. Great. That's really helpful insight. I often get asked the question about which CRMs and when CRMs, but what I'm hearing there is having a plan, even yeah. if it's, it's clearly not going to be rigid in the early days, but recording what you're learning through the conversations, that's an important part of the sales process it is it is and in my business particularly early on if i had a call with a key company it's not that that's a secret call everyone who's sitting around me knows i'm talking to very large global company a and so they're going to say turn to me and say something like how did that go or what was said and that's fine that's kind of fun in the early days but when you have 15 calls like that a week that's obviously just purely for communication when you're very small and very early it's helpful to be, well, it's, it's in the CRM. It saves you a lot of time. And then actually what you tend to find, and this is part of the fun of it, somebody in, in your engineering or your CTO will say, yeah, but why don't you talk about X? And actually sometimes that's completely valid. You should have talked about X. And you think, oh, right. Yeah, that's a yeah. good point. I really should have talked about X. So it's kind of, it's quite a, it's a relatively democratic way of giving constructive feedback. 
And, you know, my feet weren't held to the fire, but I'd say, oh, yeah, good point. Well, look, next time I talk to them, I'll talk about X. And then you learn a bit more and you refine your own You'll remember pitch. that. So, yeah. yeah, it's that's early. Now it's different. Now it's more formal. But very early on, there's only a few of you. So it's not, you know, they can almost hear you on the phone, can't they? Or, you know, unless you're in a physical meeting, they know where you are. It's not yeah. a secret. Um, so it's a very secondary benefit, but it was it was a way in which we communicated. And I, I, I was gently adjusted my propositions on the basis of pretty clear feedback from my colleagues, um, which was quite fun, but but actually, it was quite yeah, a little bit of encouragement from your co-founder and, and yeah, and a bit of a, and yeah. a gentle nudge in the right direction. Okay, for me. <laughs> great. Yeah. That's what we all need from time to time, John. Um, let's go back to then when you won the first customer. So I'm interested in first of all how you won that customer, um, and talk also a bit a little bit about the emotions that went behind it because getting that first deal in, which is validation that what you've had, someone's prepared to pay for. Can you just explain that to us? Yeah, I suppose so. So um, the experience, I'll talk about the experience emotion of it, I suppose. So every time you sell something for the first time in a new business is different from every other sale at any other point because it's, uh, and it may not be, of course it may not be, but it feels like a validation, doesn't it? It feels like the moment of um, of when something becomes truly real. Somebody has paid whether it's a pound or 10 million pounds, but has paid something from their budget and preferably an enough that you know that they are taking it seriously and that they've got the right people bought into it. So the quality of sale does matter a lot, doesn't it? But if you've got a reasonable quality sale and the revenue is X or Y, the revenue is is important, but maybe secondary too, I think, um, then that is a, v- a really, really, really important moment. And also an absolutely terrifying one because invariably the first sale in any business is going to be one where yeah you you you, you're not you've sold authentically you're not saying you can do x when you can't do it that's not what you've done but execution is new implementation operationalizing what you do is a new thing and that's that's exciting and you're ready for it you've thought it through and you've got the plan and everyone's ready but it's still like all right blimey okay well we know how to do it and we have thought it through and we we, but right and and you kind of can you should be able to it's a, but it's, it's a bit like you know you've you've run you've run laps of a track all morning and you, you know the track and you can run around in circles but as soon as someone sponsors you to run it for charity you start getting a bit twitchy about falling over and everything else and it's and of course you've done it a hundred times so you know it's not that you fall over because you haven't missold and that that obviously is everything you know I mean I, it's a personal view and we all have different styles for this but I think being pretty transparent by which I mean very with people is good. Sure, you don't have to lean forward and say, well, we, well actually, I didn't tell you, but Stephen's not very well today and Bob's on holiday. That, there's detail people don't need to hear, but but selling something you can't do must be horrific. And it would be the death of most early stage businesses. And the reason it's the death is because, A, you can't get the revenue in because you can't deliver, but more, much, much more importantly, your staff and your shareholders and your board We'll hear you say, oh, we've got this great contact with large enterprise A. We, po- we promised them teleportation and, you know, and Mars tourism by Christmas. And of course, none of that happens. And everyone gets a bit depressed, a bit disillusioned, I imagine. So I've never done that. Not in any, not in any of the things, any businesses I've done, professional services, any of it. I've done things where there's risk and where people say, well, I said, look, we're not quite sure. And we might have a bit of a, a huddle. 
but never gone out and said, yeah, or teleportation, no problem. Yeah, that's easy. Yeah, or we've got a cure for this, no problem. Come back in a couple of weeks because it would be an absolute unmitigated disaster. So, you know, there's a truthfulness and authenticity that I think matters tremendously in sales. I know you have it and you believe that, but it's, it's really easy, isn't it, to get carried away. And when someone says, can you do X, to say yes. And sometimes that's okay if you know that X is, it's, you know, it's painting it yellow. Currently it's white. No problem. Say yes. You can do that. You can get it done. Of course you can. But if you're saying yes to something that really, it's probably unlikely, let's be honest. And probably to do that, we're going to have to take all of your data from, you know, feed it through a machine and share it with the universe. Then I, so I, I, so I find, I feel much more comfortable with that approach. I would be a bad salesman of bad products. And so that's, so I'm not professional in that regard. I think that I'll never be able to sell something I don't believe in. I don't have those skills. I'm not saying others do, but I've seen it. I just can't do it. I, I, maybe I could, but I really struggle. And I've worked that out about myself. When I've ever tried to go out on a limb, as soon as I'm really uncomfortable, I come straight back off the limb again. You know, we're, we're building a business. We Things move. There's risk. But that I don't do. Um, so, so the feeling is good. But it must be miserable and frightening if you've overdone it, and it's really tempting, particularly with big companies, and especially when, you know, when I was a bit younger. You know, when in your speaking personally, I was, yeah, more, you know, more excited about some conversations when I was thirty than I am today. Um, and you know, someone gives you your first bit of money, you get, yeah, it's not, it's completely human to get carried away. But my goodness, it must be terrible if you do, particularly in enterprise sales where there are, there's really nowhere to hide usually because you're the small guy, they're the big guy, they've got the procurement processes, you've got your delivery, your SLAs, and you really don't want to make a mess of that first or second or third one. So, so yeah, so it's great, and that is really positive and exciting. But, yeah, selling what you can do does, does rather help, or at least selling what you can almost absolutely do, more or less tomorrow, um, is good. So, yeah, that's just a personal thing. We're all different on that, I think. And what do investors look for then in sales traction? And if you think back to early days of investment and even some of the more substantial phases of investment, could you just talk a little bit about what they're looking for from a sales specific? Yes, I think that depends so much on the business you run. So in a previous business I had, which became B2B, probably had we had, we had a very small value and very small number of sales within a month of launching the company. Completely different from a business like this one because you could get something in market and almost prove it out. Very early, everything changed, but you could point to some numbers and they were all going up nicely. And that's really reassuring for investors. They like to see numbers going up and I don't blame them. In a deep tech company like mine, as I said, it's not it's not pharma, and it, but it's different. So you're going to have to build things and research and develop before you've really got anything, not even approaching a product. And that's not going to take you three weeks or three months. It's going to take you some years, probably. You don't even know how long. So your conversations with investors are different. Um, they've got to be more patient. The outcome may be vastly greater, but there's a different, there's a different cadence to this. And then when you enter a sales process with enterprises of any form, it's rare that you pick up the phone and have a conversation with an enterprise and three months later, you've got a contract. That would be of any value. That's pretty unusual. And if you're in some sectors, you could times that by 10. You know, there are, there are companies I know that probably you can't get a contract out of in 30 months, never mind three months. So finding the quick movers 
and then trying to manage expectations, which is really tough. So it depends who your investors are. It's your early stage and it's angel investors and you know a small number of people. Obviously, it's easier. Uh, Series A, kind of classic VC period. There are more, if you like, standard metrics that apply to B2B companies. There are SaaS metrics, which are very established now. If you're not a SaaS business, there are other metrics. The, The metrics around deep tech are still pretty early because most investors still haven't understood the sector. Some have, but it's pretty still a minority because it's understandably, it's very new. Particularly in AI, it's it's quite difficult to get your head around what it actually is, never mind how long it's going to build a product and then scale it and, and fund it. So the sales traction question is always challenging. But if you're very early and you can't possibly have had sales, having looked at the market and having thought through to your like a plan or some approach, or th- genuinely is at least reassuring. You know, if your plan is to open twelve offices in California and employ two hundred people at half a million pounds a year, well, it's a plan. I'm not sure how well it's going to go, but it's a plan. But if your plan is, well, look, we realise we're going to be resource constrained, even if we raise X millions. Our plan is to do X amount of direct sales. We probably will look to partner with these sorts of players to address these sorts of problems in these sorts of markets. Maybe that's all you can do at this stage, but that's not bad. And it's well, how big is that market? You say, well, the market's $14 billion, but the addressable market, the bit that I can address that we can go after is a billion dollars. And right now there are four competitors and I think we could be playing in that market. So being clear about, you know, address the serviceable addressable markets and all of the, the Sam and Tam that we all get thrown around, that, that is reassuring. And it, and it may be the best you can do early on. And maybe you've had a few conversations with some friendly large enterprises who notionally say, oh, if this existed, that would be amazing. I would probably buy it. That may be all you can do, but that's pretty good. For a pre-product company, That's I think that's pretty amazing and thoughtful and grown up and mature and, and investable. If they've if they've raised ten million pounds already and they've got a staff of thirty five, that probably isn't going to feel quite so convincing. Someone might say, "Yeah, but you know, have you not actually you know spoken to any potential customers?" And if you say, "Well, no, I'm, I don't like speaking to potential customers," then that's going to be a tricky one, isn't it? So it really is depends on who you are getting money from and your business. Yeah, um, funding is a whole other conversation. Of something I've done far too much of, but it's obviously not for today, but for another day. You touched in the beginning the idea of doing programs and courses uh, for startups, and and you you come across a lot of uh, go to market planning and and sales advice where we met. How useful is that stuff in building a business? So I think can be very useful, and it depends on what stage you are personally on your own journey. So I find it useful. Um, so certain aspects, so things like sales training and perspectives on that, I've always found useful. I still do. It's great. It's always useful. So that I find of particular value. Other things I may find of less value because perhaps I've done them before. That's the only reason I wouldn't. When I first raised funding, the very first funding round I did, I didn't get much advice and it was tough. It was, they're always horrifically tough because they take time, but it was tough. And now, th- then I was later in accelerators and I saw that some first-time founders, I wasn't a first-time founder, but I'd not raised external capital we're getting all sorts of good advice and thoughts on things like structuring cap tables and option schemes and all the rest of it, which I had to learn. So you can get a really big leg up. It's just trying to find the right level. And I think, and I think maybe, you know, people can be guilty of this, but I, I think um, sometimes that it's less now, but there was a bit of a cult of entrepreneurship that some people buy into. That they believe that it's a, it's going to be good. You know, they're, they're going to be cool and it's going to be, 
and maybe they get a bit carried away with themselves. They're a bit pleased with themselves, some people, of all ages. It's not a, it's not a statement about age, though I find it more in younger founders. And that's not great because, because it's such a learning mindset. I know nearly nothing about nearly everything, and that remains the case. And so it's more fun because I get to learn, but it's pretty much the truth. And so I was open to learning. Sometimes I didn't understand the importance of an opportunity. That's different. But I never went to those things and thought, well, <laughs> this guy here is older, younger, different from me. What's he know? I, I never, ever have that attitude ever about anything. I think, I hope that's true. I think that's still true. So you've got to have that mindset. Otherwise, all these accelerators and things are just talking shots for people to say how great they are and how wonderful their businesses are. And actually, it's just brutally tough, brutally brutally tough to yeah. build a business of any type i don't care what it is launcher chain of dry cleaners i bet yeah. that's incredibly i've never done it but i bet that's hard and you can make a loads of money out of it but my goodness i bet most yeah, of them don't. I, bet. I bet it's tough yeah so it's just tough so i found accelerators and those things of of real value at different points i still would we're not part of that now but i still would i think but in the earlier stages surrounded by people who are in your situation probably pre-revenue, early stage, with a set with an infrastructure of people who maybe have done it a few times before, might have a few things to say to you that literally save you 10 conversations or a month of worrying. It, it can be really, really valuable. Equally, there's a really mixed bag of accelerators out there, so choosing the right one is, is also hard. It is genuinely difficult, and I'm, I'm not going to hear say who I think are the best accelerators, who are the worst, because that would be unfair. But I have some pretty strong views on some players. I think yeah. they're useless. I think there are some that are the opposite. And finding the opposite is where, if you can find them, it's really good. And it's nice to be part of a group, right? You're, if you're very early stage, why not be with peers who yeah, are doing yeah. completely different things, but they've got the same headaches and the same anxieties and concerns and ambitions probably as well. It's, it's interesting. That peer network is an important part of that, I would imagine, that you've got a group of like-minded people who are going through the same pressures uh, that you, and, and I don't know if you form relationships with people off the back of that, but just having that support uh, has got to be a good fill-up as you're working your way through the hard yards of building a business. It's great. The peer thing is important. And on sales, it matters a lot because what sometimes happens is you have companies that are just really, really good from from off the bat at sales and marketing they were set up by a really good salesperson they were set up by a guy who came out of marketing and somebody else as a woman from pr whatever they're brilliant at that and so when you look at their business early on from the outside if you're like me you think oh my goodness they're great they've got this beautiful website they do the amazing events and you know it looks amazing and then you meet them in real in real life and you say well they're really good at that but actually they're really not so good at there's other stuff which is maybe what you're good at and so you learn it's quite a good yeah. leveler. You learn that we're all fighting our own little battles. Some are small, some are big as businesses. And we all are probably exceptional at some things. We are. And unexceptional at others. And that's completely normal across the board of all startups. And that's quite good. It's quite reassuring. Oh, because they seem so, it looks so great from the outside. And it is great, maybe. But they've got as many gaps as you've got at this early stage. They're just different gaps. And that's fun. And, and yeah, and you can collaborate yeah. sometimes. But what, but if, if all you're doing is sitting down and saying, oh, yeah, well, actually, what we do for that is this. We found that, really, think, oh, right, we haven't got a clue about that. And then I say, well, but we need to do this in our marketing. You know, we weren't sure how to do whatever, some video. And they say, oh, we should use. And those things just uh, at the early stages are amazing. Because, oh, 
oh well, okay it's not that difficult yeah. it's not that super helpful. it's not mythical yeah it's super just helpful. it's just helpful yeah. yeah these are great insights john and we could talk all day on this i mean it's been a fascinating conversation just taking even the early part of building sales for your business and your experience we didn't get into building teams and hiring people maybe for another day uh, and also that discussion around you know what investors are looking for in, in terms of sales traction uh, i have one parting quickfire question for you uh, to think of and again it builds on this whole idea that of building a business is a constant battle and you as a founder operate behind enemy lines disrupting markets and no plan surviving first contact with the uh with the market um my question is that you mentioned them at the beginning of the conversation around the importance of partnerships and, and i want to talk a little bit about alliances so my quick fire question to you here is you know you've already referred to the importance of them for building momentum but where is a good place to start when building alliances can you give us any tips and advice on that that's a great question it's a hard one so the way that we approached the, the partner and alliances challenge and it is a challenge in some ways it's just as challenging as making a direct sale to an enterprise it may matter even more because it may prove to be your channel to market so the the weight of that first partnership or two could be everything to your business. So it is a really serious thing to embark on. And the way in which we've done it, I've done it in the past as well, is, a, is relatively simple and hard to deliver, which is to, which is to try and identify those companies who are pro providing into the, to the beneficiaries. So let's say the beneficiary is a large enterprise, a set of large enterprises in the United States, and they're in financial services. And we work out that there are five or six suppliers of technology, let's say it's software to those companies in a whole manner of, of use cases. So they've got the ear of those people. They've got resource. They're, they're sizable themselves or at least a mid-sized player, this potential partner. So they, look, so they look like they've got the right resources and they have the gap that we can fill. That's great. That's the starting point. And then you say, well, do I know anybody at that organization? And frequently the answer is no, not a soul. Right. Okay. Where do we start? So you identify, it might just be as simple as a LinkedIn approach, but you identify the who you think are the six or seven key decision makers. What are the titles? What are their roles? You build out your own proposition and deck that is partner oriented, not customer oriented, and they are different. What are the benefits for the partner? How would it help them with their positioning, the differentiation, their commerciality? And you start having those conversations. And those conversations take quite a long time because what you're really saying to somebody is, You've never heard of us. We've got this great thing, honest. You do, you do, you're doing quite well, actually. You're, you're doing fine. You know, you're all getting paid your salaries. You're partnering. You're a good company. What you need to do is embrace us, learn about us, so you can effectively sell us. That's a, that's a, tough, that's a tough and big ask. But it's a, just like any sales process. Target it. You have the conversation. Some go great. Some don't, of course. Sometimes you work out it's, a, it's not the right fit. But when you establish a fit, then you've got to provide the collateral because they'll say very quickly, well, how do I integrate this? What's it going to cost me? How to present it to third parties? How would you help me educate my sales force so that now we understand what it is you do so we can offer it? And so on and so on and so on and so on. So the planning around partnering is, is even greater than an individual direct sale because it's got more complexity and there's more demand for collateral. But firstly, it was just, who are the end beneficiaries? Who are their suppliers? Right. Who look like they've got the gap? Where is the best fit? 
And it's going to take time. Partnerships take quite a long time. It isn't a shortcut, really, to sales so much as it is a fantastic way of scaling a business if you don't want to invest huge amounts in, if you like, purely building out your own sales team. You still don't need your own functions, but you might need slightly less capital devoted to people, particularly for international expansion. If you think about the US or other markets, partners can be amazing, but it's really, really complicated and can take a long time. It isn't a quick win or an easy route. I wish it were, but it's a fantastic route, of course, you know, if, well, when it works, I should say. Um, but yes, I don't know if that's helpful, but it's uh, it's there's, there's not a blueprint for me, I don't think. Yeah, I, I think that um, partnerships are in playing a more important part at the moment because everybody's feeling the pressures in the market. Uh, I think it's easier said than done. She said there's a lot of complexity around it. It's a supercell. Yeah because you've got to convince that company to go out there and convince others that you're the right solution. Uh, and it requires a different skill set. Uh, but it's a really fascinating insight. I'm sure people will take a lot away from it. That feels like a good place to to wrap up our discussion. Um, as I said, I could have gone on all day chatting to you about this stuff, because I think there's so much knowledge that you have and experience, John, and building business. Um, massive thank you for talking to us today, and we wish you all the best. Where can people find you, and where can they learn more about the business if they want to dive deeper? They're very welcome to. They can visit action.ai, our website, and learn a bit about us. And, and I'm very open, of course, to... If you want to reach out personally, I'm on LinkedIn. My name is John Taylor, CEO of ActionAir. You can find me. Please feel free to say hello. I'll always engage best I can. I may not have many great answers to your questions, but happy to talk and learn from people. It's always fun to meet people. But And thanks, Phil. Thanks for inviting me. It's, it's fun to talk about these things, to take a break from the day-to-day. So thanks again for the invite. Really good to see you again. Yeah, and great to see you. Thank you very much, John. Thanks, Phil. Take care.